you'll take your Bibles again and turn to the second, uh, probably the second page, which is still the first chapter of Genesis. We'll begin reading our uh, two texts tonight, today. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and all over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God saw, and so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. He will make him a helper fit for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. One day when he was President John Kennedy, he and his family went down to Palm Beach to be with the larger Kennedy clan. They were all sitting around the living room when Joseph Kennedy, the patriarch, said to the president, you know, John, Carolyn is a lot brighter than you were at that age. The president said, yes, sir, she is, but look who her father is. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by looking at their father. It's said that across America every year, about a week before Mother's Day, inmates are given the opportunity to get free cards to send to their mother. And almost every year, those cards are all depleted. There are more requests for cards than there are cards to be given. But then on Father's Day, and the week leading up to it, no one asks for a card, and very few are sent. Years ago, Fred Craddock and his wife were heading from Atlanta, where they lived, up uh, into the north for a vacation. When they got to Gatlinburg, they decided to stop for breakfast. They pulled into a little diner, and as soon as they had ordered the old man, an old man walked over to their table and sat down. Now, it had been a long semester for Fred Craddock and his teaching, and he didn't really want to engage this guy. And yet the man said, Mister, what's your name and where are you from? 
Fred wanted to get rid of him, so he said to him, my name is Fred and I'm a professor of homiletics at a theological institution. The old guy said, oh, you're a preacher. I got a preacher story for you. Before Fred could say any more, the man said, Mr. Look out that window over there. See them hills over there? I was born in them hills. And when I was born, you know what they called me? They called me Ben the Bastard Boy because that's what I was. I never knew who my father was. My mother went to the grave with that secret. As a boy, I used to go down the street and I'd hang my head down because I knew they were all talking about me. There goes Ben, I wonder who his father is. When I went to school, I'd always sit in the back of the classroom and I kept my head down. I didn't want to be seen or known because I knew what they were thinking. I wonder who his father is. When I was 13 years old, seventh grade, a new preacher came to town. Now, I never went to church much I thought it was just another opportunity for people to ask me the question I never wanted to be asked, who's your father? But I have kept hearing people say he's a good speaker. So one day I went, and he was good. I went late and left early, and week after week I did the same thing. I'd go to church, I'd go late and leave early. But then one Sunday, he was so good, I forgot to leave. And the service is broken up, and people are gathering in the aisles, and I try to worm my way through, and all at once I feel a big hand on my shoulder. And I look up, and it's the old preacher man. He looks down at me, and he said, What's your name, boy? Who's your father, boy? And in that moment, he asked me the one question I never wanted anybody to ask me. He asked me who my father was. And I looked up at him in anger, and he looked down at me and said, Boy, I know who your father is. Nobody else here knows who your father is, but I know who your father is, boy. God's your father, boy. God's your father. And the old man, so moved by the telling of his story, had tears running down his face. He looked at Fred and his wife and said, you know, that one lie, God, your father, boy, changed my whole life. With that, he rose from the table and he went to the door and walked out. Fred and his wife were stunned. They were looking at each other. What was that? And immediately, the waitress runs over and said, do you know who you were talking to? Do you know who that man was? And Fred said, yeah, he's a man named Ben. He said, that's Ben Hooper two-term governor of the state of Tennessee whose life was changed by four words, God's your father, boy. Three years after I was born, Eric Erickson wrote a book. It went to five editions, Young Man Luther. And in that book, in 1958, he coined an expression, a term, that everyone knows, identity crisis. And he describes it this way. An identity crisis occurs in the life, in that period of life, 
when a youth must forge his or her own way and gain some central perspective on their life, a working unity out of the remains of their childhood and into the hopes of their anticipated adulthood. Now, that was 1958. Today, that term is used freely. He was very right. There is, in fact, an identity crisis, but what he didn't write about was the fact that that crisis can occur in any life, at any time, more than once. I've known people that are 20 years old who ask the question, who am I? I've known people in their 30s and 40s and 80s who are asking, why am I here? And the testimony of life is that there's not just one period in your life that you ask that question. You may ask that question repeatedly. Who am I? Where am I going? Why am I here? They're all questions of identity. And people for centuries have sought to answer those questions. Some turn to mystics. Others turn to a new love or to a hobby. Others turn to genealogies. You know, every summer we have people in the cemetery studying their genealogy. And some of them call the office and they ask for assistance and they ask for certain records. And, and we tell them we don't have them and they become incensed. Their need to discover who they are is so intense that they spend thousands of hours and thousands of dollars trying to figure it out. But the problem is they never go back far enough. That's why the Bible starts where it does, in the beginning. As we said last week, it's no accident. It's not a study of randomness. The Bible says out of nothing God created something, and he called it good. By the breath of his mouth, he said, let there be, and there was. And by the time you get 25 verses in, you see that God has created the heavens and the earth. He's created the vegetation, all of the animals. And then in 26, he makes this statement. Let us make man in our image and likeness. And for centuries, people have asked the question, why the plural pronouns? Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Who's us? Who's our? Well, some have answered that, that this is an early sign of polytheism. But the Bible rejects that. There are no other gods besides the God. Others say, no, it's not polytheism. What it is is the royal we. God is simply speaking kind of in a literary form. The royal we. Let us. Let our. Problem with that is there's no other royal we in the scriptures. Others say this is an early reference to the Trinity, but the problem with that is there are so few references to the Trinity before Christ. There are a lot of theories on why the Bible says, and God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. A lot of theories, but only one good one. 
When God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, he is indicating that that particular creative act takes all of his fullness, all of his character, all of his attention. I mean, you read the verses in chapter 1 we haven't read today. Verse 3, God said, let there be light. There's no mention of us or our. In verse 6 and 9 and 11 and elsewhere, in those first 25 verses, it says, then God said, and it was made, and there's no reference to a plural pronoun. You got to wait until 26. The creation of man, that the Lord says, let us make man in our image, signifying that it will take all of his creative power and all of his character and all of his glory to do it. It's only when he creates the one who will bear his image that the full force of his identity is used. And the Roman Christians would ask the question, what is the imago Dei? What is the image of God? What's it to be made? What is it to be made in the image of God? What's that mean? And they came upon two facts that they can derive from their own existence and also from the scriptures. And they said the image of God means, first of all, we can think, we can reason, we have a rationality, and secondly, we have a will. We can make choices, we have a volitionality. They said to be made in the image of God means you have a mind and a will. Centuries later, Christians said they're right, but there's other things that it means. They said in the Middle Ages, it also means that God made us a living spirit and a living soul. For the Bible says, God breathed into the dust and the man became a living soul. Rather than tracing man's root to some dead relative or some primordial slime, the earlier Christians traced themselves all the way back to Genesis 1. And they came to recognize that God made them in his image with a mind to reason and a will to choose and a spirit and a soul. But the Bible tells us more about the image of God than that right here in these verses. So let's dig in. First of all, notice in verse 26 that being made in the image of God means you have a responsibility. Verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Now the word dominion there, often translated rule, doesn't mean tyranny. It doesn't mean autonomy. It means a destiny. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let him have dominion. Let him have a destiny. And what kind of destiny is that? It's the same destiny the Lord has. A destiny of leadership. A destiny to rule as he rules. To have dominion as he has dominion. And in every way, God promotes thriving. Think of it. God doesn't plunder. He protects. He doesn't terrorize. He tenderly cares for his creation like a mother or father cares for his or her young. 
When he says, let us make man in our image and likeness, let him have dominion, it's an invitation to us to be like him, to discharge the same responsibility he discharges. Somebody has said the measure of success in a Christian life is defined by knowing what God wants to accomplish and then getting on with it. We serve a God who's a planner, a God who's a thinker, a God who has a will, a God who has a destiny for every one of his human creatures. And that destiny and that plan is that we would will his will rather than our own. Second, not only does the image of God mean that we have a responsibility, we also have a reflection. Look again at the beginning of verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. In Psalm 8, the scripture we referred to at the beginning of the service, David says, when I consider your heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and stars which you've set into place, what is man that you should care for him? You know what he's asking? Who am I? Who are we that you should care for us? The great thing about David is he not only asks questions, he answers them. Listen to what he says. We've read it earlier. He made him a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, from Abraham all the way through Jesus, when you read the Scriptures, you see that there's one person in all of creation, in all of the universe, who has as their intrinsic essence glory and honor, and that's the Lord. There's only one who's glorious. There's only one who's full of honor, and that's the Lord himself. I mean, think of it. No angel was ever crowned with glory and honor. The sun wasn't. There's no star in the galaxy that is. There's no cow. There's no animal that's crowned with glory and honor. But listen to what David says. He crowns this man, this creation in his own image, with glory and honor. I was a kid when I heard Barnhouse say this, and I've never forgotten it. He said, when we get to heaven, one of the ways in which we will know all there is to know about God is that we will see and know everyone who's there. Because everyone is a reflection of God's glory and honor. And then third, the notice there's another element to the image of God, and that's relationship. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now this verse, along with the verses we read from chapter 2, are often used in wedding services. And the reason they're read and used generally is because the officiant wants to talk about the distinctions in gender roles and responsibilities. He makes them male and female. Certain roles and responsibilities. But you know what always amazed me about that? 
That is taking this text in verse 27 and those verses in 28, or in, in, in chapter two, it's taking them and emphasizing something that's not the essence of what God's telling us. The essence of what God's telling us is when he says he created them male and female, what God's saying is, I created them in my image. He's talking about the totality of his being. You know what that means? That means if you want to know who God is, you've got to look not only at male, but also female. Now, throughout the history of the church, the fatherhood of God has gotten a lot of play, and it should. It's all through the scriptures. Jesus spoke of the fatherhood of God in a way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't believe it. No one referred to God as father. But I would remind you that in the Bible, God is often portrayed as a mother. In fact, the motherhood of God is on full display in the scriptures. Let me give you an illustration. One of the names of God is El Shaddai. It's translated God Almighty. And when you read that in English, you think of a big, strong guy, God Almighty. And yet the word shad in Hebrew is breast. The Hebrews understood when they used the term El Shaddai, they were speaking about an all-sufficient God who pours out life to her own. Isaiah chapter 66, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, O Israel. When does the Lord say that? When Israel has sinned their brains out. And he says, I will come to you and I will comfort you as a mother would comfort her child. Chapter 49, the Lord says, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion for the son of her womb? What the Lord is saying there is I'm not going to abandon you because like a mother, you are my child and you're like a nursing child. What mother would abandon her nursing child? You know what the Hebrews used to say? God is a father who acts like a mother. So when God creates us, created the male and female, he's revealing not only our responsibility not only our reflection of him, but he's also speaking about an image that engages relationship. He's talking about our relationship with him. And nowhere is that relationship any clearer than in the person of Jesus Christ, who is his son and our brother, our elder brother. You see, when the preacher looked down at that boy and said, God's your father, boy, what he was saying is all of the strength, all of the compassion, all of the traits of a perfect father and mother are stamped on you so that you might find your identity in his son, the Lord Jesus, who is your elder brother. Ben Hooper had no mother, had no father. They both died. And at age 13, the Holy Spirit prompted that preacher to say to him, 
you've got a father. You've got a father who acts like a mother. And you've got a brother, an elder brother named Jesus, and you are part of his family. Do you hear this? When Eric Erickson speaks of an identity crisis, he's speaking correctly. There is an identity crisis. It can happen at any age, and it can happen time after time after time in one life. You may have asked the question, who am I? You may ask it again. You may ask, where am I going? Why am I here? These aren't one-time questions. They often come as a result of some carnage in our lives. And you can spend a lifetime trying to answer that by going to mystics, by studying genealogies. But the only place you get a satisfactory answer is in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, where the Lord breathed into the dust and made you a living soul. But that's not all he does. He does way more than that. His resurrected son breathed on you and said to you, receive the Holy Spirit the day you trusted him. You see, the glory of the gospel is that the Father didn't just give you life. The glory of the gospel is he not only gave you physical life, he gave you new life, spiritual life. He went all the way to the cross to give you a brand new life as his son and daughter. And with that sonship and daughtership, he gives you the same power he has. Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he said, whatever sin you forgive will be forgiven. Whatever sins you retain will be retained. In other words, I give you the power to forgive each other and I give you the power to free each other, to live in freedom as my children. Who am I? Who are you? We are his. Think about that. Amen.